Last Sabbath, we looked at the Eden family that God set up in the beginning in those first two chapters where everything was ideal. Everything was exactly according to God's original order. He established the man and the woman and told them to be fruitful and multiply. And He gave family to be a blessing on the earth, each individual doing their part. And as they worked together, they would sustain and uphold the society at large in the image of God and remain faithful. But as of course we know, Genesis chapter 2 quickly turns into Genesis chapter 3. And we had the fall of mankind into sin, and that's where we pick up the story today, is now that man fell, what does the fallen family look like according to the scripture record? But before we get started in this study, as always, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again we thank you. We thank you so much for life at all. In particular, we can be here right now today in your house, now studying your word. Lord, we ask that the same Holy Spirit who moved on the waters in the beginning, who moved on the hearts of these authors to write these words, will now move on the hearts of our hearers today. Let these words be inscribed not only in our minds, but Lord, in our very characters. Let us become more like Jesus, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 4 picks up the story after Genesis 3 leaves off. Genesis chapter 3, of course, is the fall of humanity into sin. And though we don't know the exact timetable, it is clear that Adam and Eve had yet to have children before the fall occurs. And that happened now in Genesis chapter 4, that the husband and wife make their first family. And it says here in Genesis chapter 4, starting with verse 1, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. That seems an odd declaration to make. Uh, What does she mean by that? And I believe we can see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, if you go back there, I'm sorry, not Genesis 3.15, Well, Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And that seed is with a capital S. And he shall bruise your head, speaking to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. It is quite likely that Eve, here in the birth of her first child, a boy, a man from the Lord, that perhaps this very one will be the sought-for Redeemer. But we're going to see that the character that Cain develops is quite unlike the Savior that Christ would have later on. It goes on in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 2, Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now let me ask you a question. Are either of these occupations bad? No. Totally good things to do. Tending for animals and tending to the ground, no problem. But the problem comes now in verses 4 and 5. Abel also brought of the, I'm sorry, verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, what is the big deal here? Why did the Lord respect one and not the other? Well, also the roots of this is found in Genesis chapter 3 as well. Go back to chapter 3 and verse 21. The first sacrifice is intimated here in the Bible 
after the fall of man into sin. It says in verse 21 of Genesis 3, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of what? Skin and clothed them. Now, pop quiz, if you go back earlier in Genesis chapter 3, after the man and woman realized they were naked in their guilt and shame before God, had they tried to clothe themselves? Yes, using what? Fig leaves, right? For the fruit of the grounds. But the Lord did not look upon their coverings with any kind of respect. He said, no, no, that's not good enough. You can't clothe yourself with your own works. And the Lord provides clothing for them, and it takes the death of an animal. Sacrifice is instituted right there at the doorposts of Eden. And now, apparently, it was to be continued on, and Abel dutifully brings the firstborn of the flock, as God had asked. But Cain reverts back again to bringing something which the Lord had not asked for. And the Bible specifically says, And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. So you can imagine the scene. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock and puts it on the altar exactly as the Lord directs, and the Lord respects it, and it's demonstrative. It's clear. Lightning flashes from heaven. Fire consumes the altar. And it's clear that the Lord has accepted the offering of Abel. Then Cain comes and sets up his offering... Notice he's coming to the right place, he's going through the right motions, except he's bringing something the Lord had not asked for, and he's doing something in his own strength. He didn't want the Lord's provision, he wants his own. And he sets it up on the altar, steps back, and nothing happens. And it says his reaction, and it says, And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. You know, when you're happy, your mouth points up. But when you're sad, your whole face just kind of goes down. Now, he had done something wrong. The Lord had acknowledged that by not respecting his offering, by not consuming it with fire, and now his reaction is not merely conviction that he did something wrong, but it's anger. And we often think of God's conversation with Cain after he commits the murder against his brother Abel. But I want to draw your attention to the first conversation the Lord has with Cain as we continue now. Verse 6, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Now pause right there. Does the Lord know what has occurred? By the way, anytime you ask the question, does the Lord know, the answer is always yes. So he knows what's happened. He understands the circumstance, but he comes and asks him anyway. Why are you angry? It's not because he doesn't know. He wants Cain to acknowledge his wrong. Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? And notice the simple logic that the Lord employs. Verse 7, if you do well, that is, if you do what's asked of you, if you obey, will you not be accepted? The Lord says this is an easy fix. Why have you downcast? What have you done wrong? And now fix it. Do the right thing. Turn from your wicked way and you'll be accepted. It's very simple. But now notice what he says here. But if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Its desire is for you and you should rule over it. By the way, I'll just, on a quick aside here, it's always bugged me a little bit. The Lord cannot commune face to face with sinful man, 
So how is the Lord speaking to Cain here? Well, the good thing is, we have a clear answer, the spirit of prophecy. Notice this now, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 74. Notwithstanding Cain's disregard of the divine command, God did not leave him to himself, but he condescended to reason with a man who had shown himself so unreasonable. By the way, isn't it so nice that a God comes to reason with us when we're clearly so unreasonable? But he still wants to win us back, and he comes here, and he conveys a message to Cain. Then again, quoting Scripture, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? Now notice carefully, Through an angel messenger the divine warning was conveyed. So the Lord sends a messenger to Cain to speak these words to him, If thou doest well, should there not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. So how he's at a point. Notice it talks about the emotion of Cain. Cain is in a very emotional state. And what emotion is that that the Bible records? He's what? Angry. He's probably, we could probably extrapolate and expand on that. He's probably quite embarrassed. This probably happened in front of his brother. He's convicted that he's done something wrong. And instead of in contrition repenting, now he's festering a little bit of anger and it's getting more tense and he's building up. And the Lord, before he acts on that anger, sends a messenger and says, wait a minute, now think about this. Why are you angry right now? Why is your countenance fallen? You know what you've done. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? This is your moment of decision. Turn around and come back. But then he warns, if you do not do well, notice the language, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. It wants you. It will eat you up if you give in. But the Lord says, but you must master it. You should subdue it. You should rule over it. Now, I believe that if the Lord does not intervene in our lives, if the Lord does not give us his grace, that none of us would be able to escape the temptations of Satan. In fact, let's go back again in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We've looked at it once before. Let's look at it once again. When the Lord is doling out his curses and consequences, the first sin there, the very first person he addresses is not the man, it's not the woman, it's the serpent. And notice he does not ask the serpent any questions. Of course, to the man he talks and asks questions, to the woman he asks questions, but it was termed to talk to the serpent, there's no questions asked. Now, is that being unfair that the Lord doesn't give him a chance to express it? No. Because has he dealt with this serpent power before? Absolutely. Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 12 tells us very specifically that this is that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who leads the whole world astray. So when he's speaking to the serpent power, sure, there's a literal serpent there, but the power behind the power is whom? Satan. So now let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Let's start with verse 14 and look at everything the Lord says to the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, and now he's going to talk to the power in front, the serpent himself. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. But now notice the transition. Now he speaks to the power behind the power. Verse 15, and I will put enmity. Now enmity is not a word we probably use in our daily conversation, but you probably know what it means. What does enmity mean? Hatred, discord, tension right? It's an obstacle. It's a challenge. It's a, it's a 
harshness between two things, a separation. And I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, or specifically speaking to the power behind the serpent, Satan, between you and whom? The woman. And between your seed and her seed. The whole human family will have a tension between you and them. Now, they might be inclined, they might be drawn, but you will not automatically have them. I'm going to put a space in between them that they can choose whom they will serve. And here now in Genesis chapter 4, we see the first application of that enmity where God comes to Cain and says, now before you act on this, think, what are you doing? First of all, why are you angry? And second of all, if you do, not, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? You have a choice. I know you're drawn towards Satan's size. I know you're angry. I know you're drawn toward rebellion. But stop and think. Before you act, think. If you go to James chapter 1, let me, let's explore this a little bit. James chapter 1. Right over to the right of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. James chapter 1, starting with verse 12. Look at this explanation that's given about sin and temptation. Clearly, Cain is tempted to do something very, very naughty. Yes? He's angry, he's downcast, he's embarrassed, he's frustrated, he's under conviction, and the question is, what do you do about that? James chapter 1, starting with verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt any, he himself tempt anyone. Now, he allows you to be tempted, but he doesn't send the temptation. Notice in Cain's argument, he doesn't send temptation to Cain, but now that it's there, he says, now what are you going to do about it? I've created a tension here. I've created a space where you can choose. James goes on to explain in verse 14, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, right? Here's what temptation is, being drawn towards something that is not allowed, contrary to God's law. That's temptation. Now, then, when desire has conceived, or it's like, aha, there's the thing I can do poorly, there's the mistake I can make, it gives birth to sin. When you act on that, that's the birth of sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth what? Death. Because the wages of sin is death. So very clearly, he's that temptation itself is not sin, but what you do with that is the difference between righteousness and wickedness. Does that make sense? This is exactly what the Lord says to Cain. Look, let's see why you're angry, and before you do anything about that, choose whom you will serve. Let's look at another one. Let's go back to the book of 1 Corinthians. Look at the Apostle Paul. Back to, the book, back to the left, 1 Corinthians, we're going to go to chapter 10 and verse 13. The Bible explains very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. So nothing that you will face is something that other people haven't faced before. Okay? You are not under a special class of you don't have a problem so bad that you can't say no. Now, you might have pushes and inclinations and proclivities and bents toward it, but everything that you face is what somebody else has faced too. 
No temptation has overcome you, has overtaken you except what is common to man. And notice this, but God is what? Faithful. Does he say, but don't worry, you're fine. You are faithful. No. Because without the Lord's strength, what are we going to do when temptation comes? We're going to sin every time. But the Lord has put an enmity there. He gives strength. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted. Now, it wouldn't be great if the text stopped right there. He won't allow you to be tempted. But is that what it says? No, no, no. Won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make. Who makes the way of escape? Do you make the way of escape? No. God does, right? But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to what? Bear it. For Cain, there was a way of escape. The Lord came and interjected. He said, wait, wait, wait. Before you act, think. All you have to do is turn left here and you're going to be accepted. But if you go the other way, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Without Christ, we would be helpless slaves of Satan, the sport of circumstance, every one of us. But with Christ... Paul rhetorically asks, who can be against us? We're more than conquerors. Now, I know it's not customary to make an appeal in the middle of the sermon. And I'm not going to ask anyone to come down front. We're not going to have a song played softly on the background. But at this point, every one of us should be thinking, where are those areas in my life where I am stubbornly going my own way when the Lord is calling me to go the right decision? That I look at his law and I look at his expectations. I look at his requirement and my face also is downcast. Just as surely as the Lord sent his messenger to Cain saying, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? He's calling you today. If you do what is right, you will be accepted. There's pardon and power at the feet of Jesus. Now, as we continue back in Genesis chapter 4, Let's follow our storyline in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. We go to verse 8 and we can see what decision Cain made. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain apologized to Abel. Don't you wish there was even one Bible that had that in there, that that were true? But not. what does he do? That they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. We see the Lord saying, don't make this decision. We see Cain disregard that counsel and choose for himself whom he will serve. The Bible says that Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And Cain now has become like Satan. And notice what the Lord now says in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Again, does the Lord not know? Of course he knows. He's trying to bring home conviction. What have you done? And notice this dismissive, curt, rude, sassy answer. He said, I do not know. First of all, is that the truth? No. Remember the two things? Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Notice what we see here. Lies and murder. He's reflecting now the character of Satan. I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? Now I'm supposed to keep up with where my brother's at all the time? 
He's developed a character quite unlike Christ's, quite the opposite. Now, the Lord gives a consequence to Cain's sin as well, and he's driven from the family to wander the earth apart from his parents. But he goes on in Genesis chapter 4 to, interestingly enough, record for some reason the lineage or the genealogy of Cain. And these are the portions of Scripture that sometimes we're tempted to pass over, but I want to note something here for you. Let's just read a little bit in chapter 4, verse 16 and onward. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, this is not the Enoch that we're going to see in Genesis chapter 5, okay? But it goes on, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahel, you know, that guy. <clears throat> and he begot Methushel, and Methushel begot Lamech. Again, a different Lamech than the one we're going to see in Genesis 5. But it records the story of this Lamech individual. Verse 19, Then Lamech took for himself two wives. Two wives? Where do you see that? Did God set that up as part of the Eden ideal for the family? No. But he's doing what he wants. Ada and the second Zilhah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zilhah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilhah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have what? Killed a man. For what reason? For wounding me. He hurt me, so what do I do back? Kill him. Even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now why does the Bible record this? Why did we record this genealogy of Cain and his descendants? Well, I would suppose two things. Number one, notice it's not just this one begat this one begat this one. It tells stories from their lives, and namely, good stories or bad? Bad. That same murderous intent that Cain had, we see in his descendants as well. We see the same disregard for God's law in their home lives as well. Now, let's wrestle with a deeper question. Go to Exodus chapter 34, if you would. Exodus chapter 34. Moses, in Exodus chapter 33, had asked the Lord to show him his glory. Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord promised, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. In Exodus chapter 34, starting with verse 5, we see that come true. Exodus 34, starting with verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, I know there is great contention sometimes about the name of the Lord. Is it these specific consonants, specific vowel sounds that must be eliminated? Is it a certain way that you say it? Friends, what what the Lord here proclaims is not merely consonants, but character. Watch this now. Verse 6, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And up to this point, man, God is nothing but forgiveness and mercy and sunshine and joy. 
by no means, however, clearing the guilty. Now, this is the phrase that most people get hung up on. Visiting the iniquity, what's another word for iniquity? Sin, right? The transgression, the sin, the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Are the children guilty because of their parents or grandparents' sin? Is that how God reckons justice? That if you sinned, your great-grandchildren are going to have to pay for what you did. Is that what the Lord means here? No. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, page 257. I can't think of a clear explanation for this. She speaks specifically of this phrase, visiting iniquity, and let's think about it in relation to Cain and his descendants. God did not mean in this threatening that the children should be compelled to suffer for their parents' sins, but that the example of the parents would be imitated by the children. If the children of wicked parents should serve God and do righteousness, he would reward their right doing. But the effects of a sinful life are often inherited by the children. Notice not the guilt of the sinful life, but the effects, the consequences, those tendencies. Have you ever seen your parents come out of you? Now, sometimes it's fantastic. Other times, and and maybe the good stuff of my parents does come out of me and I just don't notice it, but boy, I can tell whenever, and I won't let you in on what's... But even in facial expressions, even in gestures, and, and th- you realize, oh my word, I'm my father. And I'm sure my parents will listen to that. And I, oh, that's a good thing. Or I can totally see where I get this. Or you, even worse yet, you see it in your own children. You see you and them. And as you're spanking, you're like, what? I'm spanking me. <laughs> Right? Now, that's not to say that they are guilty for the thing that you've done, but they're doing their own thing. But where they even get the idea, the example, the influence, the inherited tendency towards a thing. Mm. Have you ever noticed? And psychologists will tell you, sociologists, even non religious people will tell you very clearly, very repeatedly, how often it is the case that those who have been abused become abusers themselves. Those who have had issues with struggles and addictions or whatever their weakness was, that weakness is passed on. Now, the choice is the individual's, yes, but they come wired with a bent towards some things that, man, I got that from mom, <laughs> or I got that from grandpa, and I didn't even meet him, but somehow, right? Through the inherited tendencies and through the example of the home life, surely enough, the experience of the next generation is molded oftentimes by the choices of the previous. Listen to this as it continues. Again, but the effects of a sinful life are often inherited by the children. They follow in the footsteps of their parents. Sinful example has its influence from father to son to the third and fourth generations. If if parents indulge in depraved appetites, they will, in almost every case, see the same acted over in their children. The children will develop characters similar to those of their parents, and unless they are renewed by grace and overcome, they are truly unfortunate. 
If parents are continually rebellious and inclined to disobey God, their children will generally imitate their example. Now, praise the Lord, it's not lockstep. You're not locked into that. The Lord has put enmity, and you can choose for yourself. But generally, as a rule of thumb, that's the trajectory of the life. Godly parents who instruct their children to who instruct their children by precept and example in the ways of righteousness will generally see their children following in their footsteps. Now, does that mean just because you've lived a godly life that your children will necessarily make good decisions? No. But you've given them the advantage of an example and influence towards the positive, but their choices are their own. The example of God-fearing parents will be imitated by their children, and their children's children will imitate the right example their parents have set before them. And thus the influence is seen from generation to generation. So it's not the guilt is transferred, like, man, I'd be right before God if Grandpa hadn't done this thing. No. But the influence of the line is often developed in the individual and their own opportunities. Let's see this even more clearly in the book of Ezekiel. Let's turn to Scripture itself and look. let the Lord himself explain how he handles sin. Ezekiel chapter 18. If you get to the book of Daniel, turn back to the left, one book. Ezekiel chapter 18, and we're going to start with verse 19. Ezekiel 18, starting with verse 19. The Lord has to deal with this exact question. Are people guilty for their own righteousness, or I mean their own wickedness, or their parents. And notice what the Lord himself says. Verse 19, Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? And here the Lord gives us explanation, and why not? Because the son has done what is right, done what is lawful and right, and has kept all of my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. Now we often use verse 20 in presentations about the state of the dead, but let's think about it in the state of the wicked. Okay? The soul who sins shall what? Die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. Praise the Lord. Goes on. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. This should remind you of the language of the book of Revelation when the Lord says at the close of probation, let him who is righteous be righteous still, and him who is wicked be wicked still. That righteousness is not given by God and is to say, well, now I've assigned you to be righteous and you have assigned to be wicked. No, no, no. The wickedness or righteousness of an individual is their own choice. And that God honors your decision. Watch this. He continues. But if a wicked man, we're in verse 21 now. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Can somebody say amen? None of the, If you come to the Lord, even if you have sinned, he will forgive those sins and start you off right, right now. This is justification calling you good and sanctification making you good, both through the blood of Jesus. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that they should turn from his ways and live? You know, people get this picture that God is up there keeping a book, and the purpose of keeping the books is to see why you should die. Friends, our lives are pretty clear evidence of why we should die. (laughs) The Lord is looking for every opportunity for you to turn and live. 
See, so don't, don't think for a moment that I get any kicks, any thrill, any joy out of seeing my own creatures die. Let's go down to verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Sounds exactly like what he said to Cain. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Right back to Cain. If you do what is right, you will be accepted. But if you do not, sin is lying at the door and it desires to have you. Let's go back to Genesis 4 now. That genealogy of Cain, I believe, is recorded in Scripture to show us that influence that Cain's rebellion had on his descendants. And thus sets in motion a family line of unfaithfulness, of disloyalty, of rebellion and sin. The line of Cain. It's recorded right there in Scripture. But now... Beautifully, the chapter 4 doesn't end with all bad news. Look at how we pick up the story again now in verse 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For what purpose? For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. So Seth is the replacement of faithful Abel. And as for Seth, to him also was born a son, and his name was Enosh. And notice what it says about this family line now. Then men begin to call on the name of the Lord. So now we have the beginnings of the faithful line. We've already seen the choice that Cain made and the consequences in his lineage. Now we see the choice to fear God and worship him. And we're going to see in chapter 5 now this lineage of the faithful. We have two lines. Genesis 4 primarily the line of Cain. Genesis 5 is the line of Abel through Seth, right? Now, look at chapter 5 and verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Now, wasn't this the genealogy of Adam in chapter 4? Sure, but he had the son of unfaithfulness, but this is the faithful line of Adam, right? It's like whenever Abraham would talk about Isaac, my son, my only son. Was that his only son? No, it was the son of promise. It's the lineage, right? Here we have the same thing. This is the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of whom? God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day where they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son, now carefully watch this, in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now if Adam was created in the image of God, and had maintained that image through faithfulness, it wouldn't be any problem at all for the next generation to be the image of Adam because Adam was faithful to God, yes? But now this one is born with that disobedient tendency that Adam had developed. So it's in the image of Adam, and that's not necessarily good news. But this line, unlike Cain, chooses the right. Watch this now. Verse 4, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. 
I don't want to even wrap my mind around how many sons and daughters you can have in 930 total years. But it was a big, big family. Okay? I think there was wisdom in not listing all of those because the rest of the Bible would just be the lineage of Adam. Right? But it goes on and highlights these individuals from the lineage of Adam who are the faithful line. And he goes on to talk about Seth and Enosh, but there's one phrase that keeps coming up over and over and over in Genesis 5. Look at verse 5 again. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and look at these last three words, and he, what? Died. 930 years is a long time, but then he died. The next guy to come along, he died too. Next guy, died. It's actually quite a negative chapter. I mean, you think about it. Oh, great long life, and then he died. Long life, then he died. Well, except for one character. Let's go to verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. Now, not much is told about the... Right here, they only have verses 21 to 24 that talk about Enoch at all. But there is at least one other place in the Bible that tells us something more about Enoch. Go over to the other end of the Bible, just before the book of Revelation, go to the book of Jude. Jude is so small that it has no chapters, it's just verses. But we're going to look specifically at verse 14. Just before the book of Revelation, go to the book of Jude. And look to verse 14, and notice what it says about this Enoch. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, what's that next word? Prophesied. What does that mean that Enoch was? A prophet. There's a good little trivia for you. The first named prophet in the Bible is Enoch. And he prophesied about these men, whoever these men that Jude is referring to. Apparently Enoch talked about them way back in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. And what was he saying about them? Saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they've committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's talking about the coming of the Lord. Blessed, I mean, behold, the Lord comes, does it say, as a babe in a manger? No. He's not talking about the first coming of Christ. It would be some 4,000 years later. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. With 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment. This is Christ not coming as a sacrifice. This is Christ coming as king. And apparently the second coming of Christ, the judgment of all the wicked, was prophesied by Enoch just seven steps from Adam. So the whole rest of Scripture that we see here was shown to Enoch all the way back here in Genesis 5. Now go back again to Genesis 5, verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. Now, this is key, verse 22. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. Does that mean that Enoch, in the first part of his life, before Methuselah was born, did not walk with God? No. 
But apparently even his walk with the Lord took a deeper walk, took a better step, took a higher road. It improved. Even if you have a righteous experience now, apparently we can continue to grow in grace. Now, the Bible tells us that he was a prophet prophesying the destruction of ungodly men, specifically at the end of time. But it seems that he was also shown the destruction of the wicked men closer to his own time. Because it says that he named his son Methuselah, which translated means, when he dies, it will be sent. And of course, Methuselah dies 969 years later, the very year that the great flood was sent to destroy the wickedness of mankind. So we have clear indication from Scripture that he was not only showed the end of the world, but the upcoming destruction by water. He's seen two destructions, the one by fire and the one by water. And he names his son Methuselah as a prophecy of the coming destruction, as a warning to the ungodly of his generation. He's basically the messenger of the Lord saying, do what is right and come back. But if not, there's a way that leads to death. He's a prophet of God in those days. But notice also in verse 22 that his walk with God was not in some sort of remote cave. It wasn't some isolated place where he had no temptation and no real world experience. It says he also had other sons and daughters. He was a parent through all this. A parent multiple times over. Had to raise those children and be a real person with everyday life and basic human needs. Yet through it all, he walked with Christ. You don't have to live in some sort of remote place and cordon yourself off from all of humanity to have this special connection with God. Apparently, it's supposed to be a daily walk that we can even have now. Verse 23, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And verse 24 is some of the most beautiful language in the Bible. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So what's missing are those three words, and he died. Most Bible trivia games get this wrong. Who is the longest man ever to live? And they'll say Methuselah. And the correct answer is Methuselah's dad, who is still living today. Now, that should give us pause. I believe that we're living in the time when that judgment that he prophesied of the Lord returning with 10,000 of saints will happen in our lifetime. There will be people who are living on the earth during days just like Enoch was living then when the judgment will come from God and the question is, will we be like Enoch and see heaven without first tasting death? Listen to this passage. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 88. In the midst of a world by its iniquity doomed to destruction, Enoch lived a life of such close communion with God that he was not permitted to fall under the power of death. The godly character of this prophet represents the state of holiness which must be attained by those who shall be redeemed from the earth at the time of Christ's second advent. Then, speaking of that time, as in the world before the flood, speaking of Enoch's time, iniquity will prevail. Does this seem like the world we're living in? Absolutely. Day by day, the world becomes more and more wicked, less and less like Christ, darker and darker, but God will have a people who will shine bright even in times like that. Following the promptings of their corrupt hearts and the teachings of a deceptive philosophy, men will rebel against the authority of heaven. But, like Enoch, 
God's people will seek for purity of heart and conformity to His will until they shall reflect the likeness of Christ. Like Enoch, they will warn the world of the Lord's second coming and of the judgments to be visited upon transgression, and by their holy conversation and example, they will condemn the sins of the ungodly. As Enoch was translated to heaven before the destruction of the world by water, so the living righteous will be translated from the earth before its destruction by fire. Apparently the Enoch experience can be ours today. That if we see where we've gone wrong, that we will begin to walk with the Lord even now. And that by growing daily in a real world living faith experience with Jesus Christ, we can develop the character of Jesus so that we can go from this world to the next seamlessly. Without having to taste death, without falling under the dominion of Satan, that we can be conquerors even in the most difficult times. Genesis 4 outlines the lineage of the unfaithful. Genesis 5 recounts the lineage of the faithful. And it would be so nice if this lineage witnessed to this lineage and converted all the hearts and everyone was pulled up to that higher standard. But that's not what the Bible records. The Bible records that the... And we're going to pick this up next week, so you've got to come back next Sabbath. That those two lines don't stay separate for long. But in fact, they do merge. But instead of the one trending upward, the other trends downward. And the destruction by water that was prophesied comes to pass. But while that lesson remains for us next week, let's think about the lesson we've learned this week. Every one of us comes preloaded with trials, discouragement, obstacles to Christian growth, unique to our own experience. However, nothing is overtaking you which is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but what, with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under. I don't know what you're facing, but I promise you God has victory for you if you truly want it. I don't know if, you, I don't know if it's a habit. I don't know if it's a thought process. I don't know if it's a, it's a way of life. I don't know. I have no clue, but it's something... But whatever it is that besets you, Christ has strength for you. He has put enmity between you and that serpent. And if you want a way out, he will give you the strength to overcome. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org